Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for a chance to assemble, to worship you. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you would illuminate the truth of the gospel in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite movie trilogies of all time is Lord of the Rings. All right, any Lord of the Rings fans in here? All right, there we go, my people. I love you guys. So Lord of the Rings, fantastic, all right? And in the second movie, it's called The Two Towers, a good portion of that film is spent leading up to this massive battle towards the end, all right? So on one side, we have the good guys, okay? The good guys are just a few hundred soldiers, about 300, and there's some able-bodied young men, um, but there's a lot of children and a lot of elderly people as well. Um, and if you actually look at the armor that they're wearing, it's very poorly made. It's kind of like barely hanging on by a thread. And if you look at the weapons that they're holding, they're very crudely fashioned. And this ragtag army looks out into the distance. And then you slowly start to hear thump, thump, thump. And then in the distance, first you start to see a few torches and then tens of torches, and then hundreds of torches, and then thousands of torches as this marching gets louder. Thump, thump, thump. And you see the camera pans back to a ragtag group, and they're guarding this massive stone fortress. And you can just see the looks on their faces. They are terrified. I mean, they're pale, they're shaking, they're gulping in their throats, they're sweating. And you just know, as this army approaches, and more and more and more of the sea of black starts to reveal itself, man, we are hopelessly outmatched. And the sound is deafening by this point. It's thump, thump, thump. And you just know, man, our heroes are going to die unless there is a miracle that delivers them. They would need a miracle to emerge victorious. And then the army stops, and all is silent, and they just stare at each other. This evil army of 10,000 creatures that look straight from the pit of hell, waiting to consume their prey. So you've been following along a Deer Creek with our series in the book of Acts. You might have noticed a very distinct pattern so far. So as the gospel spreads, then persecution rises. But then as persecution rises, the gospel spreads even more. And this gospel cannot be stopped because God will not let it be stopped. And this cycle has happened several times throughout the first 11 chapters of Acts so far. But in our passage this morning, this cycle of persecution and the gospel spreading reaches a boiling point. So the gospel has been spreading like wildfire, but now the persecution against the church reaches levels we haven't seen before. And just like that scene in Lord of the Rings with the two armies silently staring at each other, it seems like all hope is lost. And in this passage, it seems like this persecution may just triumph, and that the evil that the church faces is just insurmountable. And just like in Lord of the Rings, the only thing I can think is, wow, the church would need a miracle to emerge victorious. So let's set the stage in chapter 12 by starting with verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So we'll stop there for a moment. Up to this point in Acts, 
We've seen persecution against the church, but it's been solely confined within a religious sphere, meaning it's the Jewish religious leaders who are persecuting the church. And to be clear, they do have a good amount of power. Right? They have the power to throw people in the church in prison, and that's a, that's a serious level of persecution. However, as we read here, this persecution has now boiled over from the religious sphere into the political sphere. It's boiled over from Jerusalem into Rome. So it's not just the Pharisees or the Sadducees or other Jewish leaders who are persecuting the church. No, no, no. This time, it's a Roman official named Herod, who is the king of Judea, the king of the entire region. He is now the one who is persecuting the church. It's reached a boiling point. And in verse 2, we see exactly what Herod is willing to do. It says, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, if you don't know, the New Testament was originally written in ancient Greek. Um, it wasn't written in English initially. So the English translations that we have are very good. But in this particular verse, it kind of fails to capture the heaviness of the original Greek term for when it says James was killed with the sword. Right? In ancient Greek, what that would imply is that James would have been beheaded. And in ancient Roman culture, that was one of the most violent and shameful ways that you could die, right? Second only to the likes of crucifixion. And what's more, this isn't just some random person in the church, right? Not that anyone in the church is random, but this is James. He's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He's a well-known, well-respected, well-loved leader who was closely tied with Jesus for years, this is the guy who was killed. So Herod, this political king, has just made a statement by killing James. So we see the gospel has been spreading in the first 11 chapters of Acts, and now persecution is rising to a boiling point. But Herod's not done just yet. In the first part of verse 3, it reads, And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So here's Herod, right? He wants to maintain his reputation with the Jews because the Jewish leaders have a lot of power. So he kills James. Then he says, oh man, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're loving this. So I'm also going to arrest Peter. Now, Peter was also one of Jesus' 12 disciples, just like James. And actually, Peter has proven to be the single key leader of the entire church so far in the book of Acts. So what we've done is we've kind of set up this like battle of the titans, right? In the left corner, we have King Herod, right? King of Judea, immense amounts of political power. And on the right side, we have Peter, who is the head of the Christian church at this point in history. But the problem is this isn't a fair fight because Peter is in the boxing ring against Herod with his hands tied behind his back, right? He's totally subject to Herod's will. He's imprisoned. And we read on in the second part of verse 3 that this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And we've actually seen an account very similar to this before. A man who was arrested around the time of the Passover festival, a man who was then arrested to the approval of the Jewish religious leaders at the time, 
a man who was brought in a public trial. I mean, does any of this sound familiar? Right? That man's name is Jesus. And remember what happened to Jesus as a result of that trial. He was found guilty, and then he was executed. So when the church in Jerusalem heard about what was happening to Peter, they would have instantly knew what came next. Peter is about to die, just like Jesus did. The problem is, Peter's probably not going to rise on the third day. This will be final. So we move on to verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the church knows Herod is about to kill Peter as soon as the Passover ends. So they're desperately and incessantly over and over and over praying for a miracle on Peter's behalf because that's what it's going to take. Remember that scene in Lord of the Rings? The two armies are standing. You have 300 ragtag, you know, horrible armor, blunt weapon soldiers against this massive army of 10,000 eight-foot-tall terrifying creatures. It would take a miracle for that army in Lord of the Rings to win that battle. And that's exactly the same scene that we see here. It's going to take a miracle for Peter and the church to emerge victorious from this persecution that they're facing. And some of us may relate on a smaller scale to Peter's situation. right? So before I worked at Deer Creek, as our youth director. I worked at a really large company, almost 100,000 employees in the top kind of 200 of the fortune list in terms of size. And they were really big on emphasizing religious tolerance, meaning, you know, hey, you can work for us and you can use your gifts and talents to further our mission as a company. And it doesn't matter what your faith system or your set of beliefs are, right? You can be Christian, sure. You can be Muslim, you can be Hindu, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, you can be anything that you want, and you are welcome to work here. So I thought, well, wow, that's a great policy. And what a great opportunity to then witness to coworkers, right? If you're truly religiously tolerant, that's a fantastic idea to go and then say, hey, because we can share our beliefs freely, let me tell you about Jesus and let me tell you about the gospel. But the tone shifts very noticeably when you actually start to do that, right? And here's why. Because when you share the gospel, the true gospel, you are forced to say, no, 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 my God, Jesus, is the true God, not Allah, and not the Hindu pantheon, not whatever higher power you may believe in, and not a non-existent God. It's like, no, those beliefs are not true. The true God is Jesus. And my company was totally fine when you were like, hey, your God is one among many. But as soon as you try and claim, you know, no, my God is one of one, then there's a hostile response. They say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't possibly actually tell me that's what you think. Right? We have worked for hundreds of years as a country to go from this archaic, misogynistic, patriarchal, bigoted, intolerant, and closed-minded idea that your religion is the only true religion. We have progressed as a society far past that. So don't you dare go backwards. Don't you dare lose that progress that so many of our founding fathers and everyone else in America afterwards has worked so hard to ensure religious freedom. We believe here you can believe in the Christian God, but he's one of many. But as soon as you claim he's one of one, there's such a hostile response. 
And that's exactly Peter's situation in Rome. They were very welcome and opening to any religion that you want. There's a lot of religious freedom. However, as soon as you try and claim, no, my God is the true God, there's hostility. And on the day-to-day, I would often think, man, well, maybe the only thing I can really do for the people who I want to witness to is just pray for them, right? Just pray that God would work a miracle in their hearts so that the gospel would spread and so that they would come to faith. Maybe the only thing I can do is to pray. That's exactly what the church is thinking now. They face such incredible hostility, such hopeless odds, that all they can do is pray. So the stage is set. Is this persecution going to prevail? Is Herod going to win? What's God going to do to answer the church's prayers? And our question today, what is God going to do to answer our prayers? Well, let's read on in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So here's the scene, right? Peter's chained. He has one arm attached to a guard on his right, one arm attached to his guard on his left, and he's asleep. And then there's two guards in front of him right by the prison door. So again, a hopeless situation, right? Peter needs a miracle to escape this. And actually, that's exactly what God does. An angel of God comes down, appears, and miraculously looses Peter's chains, leads him past the guards, opens all of the doors, all of the gates, leads him outside of the prison into the city street, and then leaves. And in fact, this is so shocking and unexpected to Peter that our account tells us he didn't even realize what was happening was actually happening. He thought, well, this must be some sort of weird vision, or this must be a dream that I'm having. But then the angel leaves him, and Peter realizes exactly what has really happened in verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So remember back to Lord of the Rings, right? If you've seen the movie, you might remember kind of what happens after that scene when you have the two armies standing still and looking at each other right before the battle. The battle starts and goes on, and our good guys, those 300 little ragtag soldiers, are completely overwhelmed. They're completely overwhelmed. Their fortress is overtaken, and all hope is lost. But then we see, in the distance, on a white horse, Gandalf, the white wizard, right? And his his horse does that thing where it kind of, you know, like does like a little neigh. And he's sitting up there with his staff looking all heroic. And then behind him, there's thousands of soldiers on horses, and they charge down this really steep hill. The sun rises behind them right as they're, you know, charging down. It's perfect cinematic timing. The shot looks amazing. And then they turn the tide of the battle, and the king 
thrusts up his sword and he says, victory, we have victory. The heroes got their miracle. And friends, that is exactly what happens in this passage. It was going to take a miracle for Peter to escape the situation that he was in. It was going to take a miracle for the gospel to emerge victorious from this persecution. But that is what God provides, a miracle for Peter. And friends, remember this pattern we've seen so far. As the gospel spreads, persecution rises. But as persecution rises, then the gospel spreads even more. The gospel cannot be stopped because God will not let it be stopped. So Peter takes a moment, lets reality set in, and then he decides to meet up with the rest of the church in Jerusalem, starting in verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So Mary, who's this mother of John Mark, right, her house would have functioned as kind of a gathering place for the church in Jerusalem at that time. So today we gather in this building, right, Deer Creek, but 2,000 years ago, they would have gathered at people's homes, right, because they wouldn't have had the funds to build something like this. So Peter knew exactly where to go, and he knew that he would find a lot of the church gathered there. And notice in verse 12, it says that he finds them praying. They're still incessantly praying on his behalf. So then Peter knocks on the door, and the servant girl, Rhoda, answers. So we continue in verse 14. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So, so this is like a funny scene to me, at least when I read it. Like, I kind of imagine the scene. So Peter comes up to the door, knocks on the door. Here's footsteps coming, right? So on the other side of the door, here's Rhoda, the servant girl. She walks up, opens the door, sees Peter, and then freaks out. She's like, oh my gosh, it's Peter, and then runs away, right? She's so excited, she forgets to let him in. And Peter's just like, what the heck just happened, right? <laughs> so he's left hanging. But the point is, Rhoda is so overjoyed she forgets to open the door. So she goes and starts telling everybody else, Peter is here. But in verse 15, we see everyone else's response. It says, they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. So here's Rhoda freaking out, super excited, and no one is taking her seriously. Right? No one is taking her seriously at all. But meanwhile... In verse 16, Peter, remember, is still the door, right? He got left hanging, so he's still knocking. And it says, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. In fact, what happens is when it says they were amazed, the people get so loud when they see Peter, they're so excited that Peter has to, like, shut them up, right? Because in verse 17, it says, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter, after making a big scene, calms everybody down, tells them, hey, go spread the word. And then Peter leaves, goes somewhere else, right? But meanwhile, back at the Roman prison in verse 18, now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. So here's the soldiers, right? They're also freaking out, but a much different tone. 
Okay, the church is freaking out because they're excited. The soldiers are freaking out because they are panicking. Right? They know exactly what's going to happen, and that's exactly what does happen. Right? King Herod comes down, says, all right, whose fault is this? Right? Who let the prisoner escape? Finds the guards, executes them, and leaves. And to be clear, that's exactly what Herod should have done. That's what he should have been expected to do as a good leader of that time. So Herod just dusts off his hands, say, hey, situation taken care of, and then he leaves, goes somewhere else. And even if we actually end right here at verse 19, I think this is a pretty good story, right? God answers the church's prayers in the face of this absolutely hopeless situation. The church prays desperately. They pray incessantly for a miracle, and then God gives them one. He frees Peter from prison in this amazing fashion. And friends, you can't read this passage without coming to the conclusion that God extends his kingdom through prayer. So my, my best friend is a guy named Parker. So I've known him over half of my life. And we went to middle school, high school, and college together. And we're like inseparable basically that whole time. He's out in another state now. But man, I mean, I would die for this man. And, and he knows that I would. And I really wish I could stand up here and encourage you and tell you that because of my incessant prayers, because of how earnest that they were on his behalf, that God worked a miracle in his heart and that he accepted Jesus as his savior. But it's just not true. I mean, I have prayed desperately and incessantly for him for over a decade now. But if anything, he seems to have strayed farther from the gospel than where we started. And sometimes it's so tempting for me to just give up. I'm like, did God not hear my first thousand prayers? Like, what is the point of one more? Right, like, have I not given enough of my emotional capacity and my time to praying for this person? Right? Like, now it's on God. Like, I don't know what his deal is, but I am hopeless. It's so tempting to despair like that. But friends, maybe you know someone in your life like that. Right? Maybe that's where your heart is. You've prayed for them so many times over years and decades, and it's nothing. Nothing seems to be getting through. No progress. But what this passage reminds us today is that God uses our prayers in miraculous ways to spread the gospel, to extend his kingdom. And as I've been preparing this sermon, is the passage I need to hear so that I don't give up hope, so that I don't stop desperately and incessantly praying for my friend and those in my life who are like my friend who don't yet know the Lord. Because, friends, we cannot lose hope when we read a passage like this, we cannot lose hope. We have to continue to pray for those people in our lives because God can work miracles in their hearts through our prayers. So, the end, right? The gospel wins. Herod loses. The kingdom of God continues to spread through the prayers of his people. But there's one problem. Herod, at this point in the story, has gotten off completely scot-free. Right? He's just down, gets to go off to the coast in Caesarea and hang out. But remember, he literally murdered a guy for no reason. So where is the justice for Herod? Well, I'll tell you, God does not let that injustice go unpunished because God doesn't just spread his kingdom positively through prayer by bringing souls into his kingdom, but he also spreads his kingdom by removing those people who would oppose it. And in verse 20, we'll see what happens to Herod. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, 
And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So here's King Herod, dealing with a totally unrelated issue to everything that's happened before. And he solves the issue with his people. And then he gives this public address, much like I would be doing right now. Gets in front of the people. And the people are so happy with his speech and with his solution, they literally start calling him a god. And what Herod should have done is say, no, 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 I'm not God. There's a true God. Give him the glory. But he doesn't do that. He loves it. He's soaking it in. He's like, oh, yeah, give me all the praise. And God immediately judges him. Right? Justice. Justice was done against Herod the persecutor. And now God's kingdom can spread without inhibition. Because no one, friends, without Christ, no one can escape God's judgment. Now, here's one interesting thing to clarify. Right? If we just ended here and didn't flesh this out anymore, you would think, wow, Herod was really a not very likable guy. Right? He was just this awful person. Everybody must have hated him because he's portrayed so negatively in this passage. But to the contrary, we know there's a scholar named Josephus who's Jewish, very, very important scholar from the first century. And he wrote about this Herod in Acts 12. This Herod's name is Herod Agrippa I, and he actually had a really good reputation. He was super generous, so he would just randomly give like, really lavish gifts and presents to people. Uh, he would go to foreign nations, and then he would give them gifts. He'd build them cities and temples and all sorts of buildings. He had a very lenient immigration policy. So if anyone wanted to come to Judea from another part of the empire or another part of the world, you know, hey, open arms, and then we'll, we'll help you, we'll support you, and we'll give you the resources that you need. On top of that, he was very pious in his adherence to the Jewish law, right? So all the moral religious authorities, they would have approved of him as well. They say, wow, he, he doesn't let a single day go by without sacrificing like he should. So Herod has a great reputation. We might think, wow, everybody must have hated Herod. No, everybody would have said, Herod's a great guy. He's a great leader. We really like him. And by that standard, well, Herod doesn't really seem to deserve this judgment, Right? Because Herod's a pretty good person. And some of you sitting in this room might be in that position where you say, well, I don't call myself a Christian, but I am a pretty good person, right? I mean, there's really bad people in the world. They need a savior. Their sins are too egregious for them to take care of. But I'm good. I haven't done anything crazy like murder a guy. And I have one thing to say to you. You need to repent you are walking a path of destruction. Your trajectory and your rejection of the gospel only leads to one place, and that is judgment by the same holy God who judged Herod. And your destiny, if you continue in that sin and you continue to reject the gospel of Christ, is in a place that we call hell. It is a lake of fire and eternal torment where you will endure the wrath of God forever. And you might say to me, okay, dude, like, you're a little young. You don't get it, all right? When I say I'm a good person, I mean it, all right? Like, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to claim to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I really am a good person. I'm kind. I'm generous. I donate to charity. I'm a loving spouse. 
and a loving parent. I'm supportive of my extended family. I do all these good things. And yeah, I, again, I've made mistakes. But who hasn't made mistakes? So who are you to tell me that I deserve this horrible fate? And I'll just tell you again, if you reject God's son, Jesus Christ, just like Herod, you cannot escape God's judgment. Right? Herod's reputation, his generosity, his good character did not save him. Neither will your good character save you. And all of us in this room, myself included, we've done things that we regret, right? We've done things that we know are wrong. And I'll be the first person to admit that. And we all have a tendency to justify ourselves in two ways, right? The first way is we make excuses. So we say, oh, well, listen, I yelled at my kids because I was really tired, right? Like, I come home from work. It was a long day. It's the holidays. I didn't really mean what I said. Or I ignored my wife because she ignored me first, all right? You don't get the whole context of the marital argument that's been going on for years. And, or I lashed out at that coworker because that coworker is just the worst. Like, if you worked with that coworker day after day, year after year, like, you would do the exact same thing, right? But we know those excuses don't undo the things that we've actually done, right? We still hurt those people regardless. So, okay, first strategy doesn't work. The second strategy to justify ourselves, we might say, okay, well, look, like, I get it. I've done these bad things. I regret them like everyone else. But over here, I've done way more good stuff, way, way, way more good stuff, right? Like, see my previous note on the charities and on the generosity and the kindness and the family man that I am. So the scales of justice should tip in my favor, right? I don't deserve an attorney in hell. And I'll tell you, that is nonsense. That is actually bogus. That is garbage. And here's why. If you murder someone and if you're on trial and you're guilty, and you are judged guilty, then you go up to the judge afterwards and say, well, okay, I, I am guilty of murder, but, but I did donate to charity, and I did do 2,000 hours of community service. So what does that get me? The judge is like, doesn't get you anything. There's not a justice system on the planet that holds to this idea that your good deeds undo your past crimes. So that doesn't work. The only real way you can make up for your bad deeds against other people is by offering something of value to the person that you offended. So for example, if, if I have my laptop up here on stage, right, and then someone comes up to me and then just breaks it over their leg, I'm going to be pretty mad. right? I'll be pretty angry. I'm like, that's worth $1,000. Why did you break my laptop? Well, if that person comes up to me afterwards, says, hey, I'm so sorry. Um, I don't know what came over me. Here's $1,000 to pay for your laptop. Then at that point, I'll be like, okay, you know what? I'll forgive you, right? Because the money that they gave me is valuable. It's just as valuable as the laptop that I lost, right? So I value that money. Or if you yell at your kids, you can offer them an apology, take them out to ice cream, tell them, I didn't mean what I said, like, I really do love you. And your kids will probably forgive you because they value your love. Your love is valuable. You can give that to your children. But friends, here's the problem. When we sin, we aren't just offending some other flawed human being. We offend a perfect, righteous, and holy God. And my question to you is, what do you have to offer God that he would find valuable? Because he doesn't need your money, and he doesn't even need your love. He doesn't need anything that you can give him because he's God. So you could never make up for your bad deeds against God ever, not by yourself, because you don't have anything of value to offer him. 
But friends, there is such good news. There is amazing news because God knew this. He knew that none of us could ever make up for our sins, could never repay him because we don't have anything valuable to offer him. So instead, he offered himself. He sent his son in the form of a man named Jesus who lived the life that none of us ever could. Perfect, spotless obedience. He never once sinned. And then Jesus died a horrific death on a cross and endured all of the anger, all of the wrath for all the sins of the whole world. And friends, the great news is that that obedience, that Jesus' obedience and his death on the cross are infinitely valuable to God. They're valuable enough to pay for my sins, for your sins, for everyone's sins who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior. So all you need to do to escape that terrible reality that we call hell is accept that you can never repay God by yourself. You need a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus. And if that's not you this morning, I would just encourage you, repent, turn away from that sin, turn away from your selfish ambitions, and turn instead to God, his righteousness, and his goodness. Lean on Jesus' righteousness and not your own And friends, that's the gospel that spread like wildfire in Acts. It's the gospel that spreads like wildfire today. That's the gospel that cannot be stopped because God will not let it be stopped. For if we continue like Herod in our evil ways, we will certainly inherit the wrath of God. But if, like Peter, we accept Christ, accept his sacrifice and his righteousness as our own, we will certainly inherit eternal life with God Because God is not just powerful to loose the chains of a prison for Peter, but he is powerful to loose the chains of our sin today. And finally, our passage concludes with verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So in Lord of the Rings, the battle we talked about today, it was a major victory for good, right? A big deal. But it wasn't the end, because remember, it's only the second movie. There's a whole, like, four-and-a-half-hour third movie called Return of the King. So we know the Sauron, the Dark Lord, he still rules over Middle-earth. There is a lot of work that needs to be done by our heroes. Here's the difference between us and the people who are in that situation in Lord of the Rings, the characters, though. We know they're going to win, right? Lord of the Rings came out a long time ago. It doesn't matter how many times you watch Return of the King. The ending is always the same. The good guys win. They vanquish evil forever and they live happily ever after. You can watch it 10,000 times. That's never going to change. And imagine how motivating that would be for those heroes if they just knew that, if they knew for certain that they would win, that they would emerge victorious against whatever persecution they face. Man, they would never give up hope. They would never give up. And friends, that actually is our reality now as Christians. Because no matter how many times you finish the Bible, the ending is always the same. At the end of Revelation, God wins, he vanquishes all evil, and we live with him happily ever after. So do you know what verse 25 means in our passage? To be continued. Because first of all, the story of Acts isn't done. we got 16 more chapters, so please come back to Deer Creek because we're going to continue to go through that. <laughs> but besides that, the story of the gospel is not done either. 
right? Like, we're not at the end of Return of the King yet. We're kind of at the end of the Two Towers. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, even though we had this major victory because of the resurrection of Christ. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But unlike our heroes in Lord of the Rings, we know how the story ends. We know that. We know that the gospel will emerge victorious. So why would we ever lose hope? So we need to pray for those who have not accepted this gospel, that God would work a miracle in their hearts through our prayers so that he would extend his kingdom. And if you have not already, accept this good news. Stop leaning on your own merits, on your own character, and accept Jesus' perfect, spotless obedience and his death, and accept his righteousness as your own, and be welcomed with open arms in a relationship with God and his church. For no matter what you believe, as the gospel spreads, persecution rises, But as persecution rises, the gospel spreads even more. The gospel cannot be stopped because God will not let it be stopped. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you sent your son, Jesus, one in substance with you, to take on the form of flesh, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to live out the obedience that we can never live out. God, we just pray for those who need to hear this gospel message today that they would accept Jesus into their lives, accept him as their Lord and Savior. And for those who call ourselves Christians, Lord, encourage us with this passage today that you will use our prayers in miraculous ways to to extend your kingdom. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.